Dr. Michael Cantor studied both law and medicine at the University of Illinois before completing his residency at Harvard Medical School's Beth Israel Hospital. He's a geriatrician and has a very interesting career, being the chief medical officer of both Uber Health and Intuition Robotics. We talk about Uber's role in the future of healthcare, the gig economy and hardcore free market economics applied to patients, and why it's so important for doctors to be in the driving seat as leaders, not just passive observers. I hope you enjoy. Why does Uber need a chief medical officer? Uber created a division like five years ago now called Uber Health. And the idea was to create a a set of products and services specifically focused on the needs of the healthcare system. So it wasn't just a rideshare service. The vision is to actually use the resources that Uber has to enhance the health of populations. And what that means is it goes beyond being just a rideshare service. So for example, it's a healthcare, we have the potential to create a marketplace for services related to social determinants of health. And what that means is that instead of, if I need a ride, I have my Uber app. If I need a meal delivered, I have, maybe I have Uber Eats, maybe I have some other app. If I need medication delivered, I have something else. If I need um, someone to come and fix my house because I have a, a leak in my roof, I have something else. So instead of having to go four or five, six different places to meet those needs, we can go to one place and actually more efficiently and more effectively meet those needs. So a patient or a caregiver or a care manager from a health plan or a nurse working in a clinic can log into the Uber dashboard today and set up a ride. So if my canter needs a lift next week, I shouldn't say lift, uh-oh. Um, <laughs> uh, if I need a ride next week, then I'm allowed, then the nurse at the clinic can order it for me. I don't have to order it myself. And especially in older populations, this is why it's so great to be a geriatrician working with Uber Health is that uh, mobility is a fundamental gap for many older people that becomes more challenging as they get older. I used to give lectures on the uh, ethics and um, legal issues related to managing older drivers, because as we get older, you have to be able to see, move, and think all at the same time to drive safely. And as we get older, it's more likely we can't see or move or think all at the same time the way we need to. And that's why some older drivers are at risk and some are, many, many of them are not, of course. So Uber as an alternative solution is a huge opportunity to fill a gap in transportation, but also to simplify access for these other services. There's a slight conflict with these um, products and services coming out of Silicon Valley, uh, Uber and others, where the demographic who could potentially utilize them the most, so you were describing older people who need to get to hospital and clinics, don't necessarily um, understand them that much or don't necessarily, they're not really targeted at them. And it's actually the, the young, fit, well people uh, like ourselves who are actually raving, raving about them, who potentially need them less. So how do you tackle that? So you need to create product designs and actually meet the needs of older adults. And first of all, the near... You know, what, what, what is, who is an older adult? It used to be 65 was the point at which, okay, you're retired and you're, now you're older. Well, we all know retirement ages are going up. We also know that if you think about it from a functional perspective, usually it's 75 is when we start to see sort of the functional decline, cognitive decline, et cetera. So in geri- geriatricians in practice, sure, they still see people in their 60s, but mostly it's people in their 70s and really 80s and 90s um, who are the frail older adults that are the focus of most geriatricians. So what you need to do then is understand that there's a large group of people who we may think of as older adults. They may be retired, they may be 75 or 85 years old, but they're still more than capable of using their smartphone and pushing a button on the app and ordering a ride. 
but there are different ways that you can manage that. So there are other companies that we, we actually Uber works with them um, to where instead of an app, you just call a phone number and they take care of it for you. Or in the case of Uber Health, you can actually order a ride, have the care manager or the nurse in the clinic you know, order a ride. So there are definitely ways to create different interfaces that allow people to um, allow people to uh, access those services more directly. Another company I work with is called Intuition Robotics. They're an Israeli company that makes companion robots for seniors. And so these are devices that sit next to the older person. And um, unlike other sort of smart speakers in your home, uh, this device, which is called LEQ, LEQ will actually initiate conversations. So I'll ask, how are you doing today? Well, remember that afternoon you said you weren't feeling well in the morning. So I'll ask you, are you feeling better? Or what did you have for lunch? And have conversations and interaction. And so now LEQ is actually potentially becoming that platform that connects older adults to the outside world. And so if you need to use to, to, to access Uber, you can say to LEQ, hey, I need a ride and LEQ can take care of it. Uh, so there are ways that you can now begin to use these different interfaces. And for seniors in particular, voice interfaces are especially promising because you don't have to be able to see, you have to be able to hear some, but Mostly, it's it, you don't have to type anything. You have to worry about pushing the wrong thing on your app. You don't have to worry about all this other stuff. So I think the interactive um, voice technology, voice recognition, also machine vision, which will make it easier for the devices to interact with older adults. I think the future, we're going to see a lot less of keyboards and phone-based apps even, and just more of these sort of um, digital agents that are actually interacting with older adults, making it easier for them to access services when they need them. It's interesting that you mention um, voice interfaces and robotics. And my question to you was that I think, and you may be able to correct me on this, but from research into longevity, we know that as someone gets older, the more family they have, if they're in a relationship, if they have a sense of purpose, these kinds of things, they're not socially isolated. That's really good for their longevity and happiness. Do you think these things that we dream up in terms of voice interfaces, robotics, all of these things, do you think they could be a genuine um, improvement for these people's lives? Or do you think they're just kind of putting a Band-Aid on the problem that we're just dreaming up sat here and they actually what they really need is real life interaction? So I think in an ideal world, people would be getting out of their homes, they'd be interacting with their friends and family, they'd be able to um, address their issues with isolation and loneliness more effectively. Unfortunately, there is a significant number, there are a significant number of people today and a growing number of people who are isolated, who are lonely, who don't have the ability to access their communities the way that they could. And so technology becomes a way that you can actually expand access uh, and create a dialogue and engage people in real time. Is LEQ a substitute, for example, for human interaction? No, but there are, from what we see from the user data, there are people who are thrilled that they have LEQ in their homes because even though it isn't a person, um, LEQ is not judgmental. LEQ only does the things that this person wants them to do. LEQ allows them to interact with the outside world by doing trivia games or playing music. It helps with mindfulness and has mindfulness exercises. It helps people exercise physically um, and soon we'll be able to to create video links between that person and their families directly through LEQ so they won't have to worry about Zoom links and crashing their systems and Wi-Fi and all the rest of it. It's going to be much easier. And so technology can be both a way to, 
to replace people who, for people who, who lack access to human interaction, it can be a replacement, although not as good. Um, and the cost will be a facilitator because it can more directly connect people together uh, so that they can actually see each other, talk to each other without having to deal with complex technology. I want to talk about the gig economy a bit more broadly um, and specifically its applications to physicians and maybe other clinicians as well. Do you have a vision of one day having an Uber Health or another kind of gig economy service that physicians use a lot more? Because at, it, at its best, it's something that really can make someone more autonomous. They can work anywhere in the world, whenever they want, on their own conditions, balance a family and other jobs. So it's it's really a, a bit of a promised land. Like, what's your, What are your thoughts on that? So I think the... Um... I'm an, an independent consultant, and so that's basically what I do, and I find it to be great. And I think that the freedom and the autonomy are, are good. There's real risk is the problem with the gig economy, right? If there aren't enough gigs or the people you're doing the gigging for aren't paying you or aren't treating you well, those are the, the challenges of the gig economy. I feel like the, um, the reality is we have a shortage of physicians, and we have a problem with access to care. So... If you think about uh, behavioral health as an example, here in the US, we have a ton of psychiatrists and a ton of psychologists, but they just don't accept insurance and they're sort of not accessible um, for many people because of that. Um, there's also the case that in certain kinds of psychiatry, like geriatric psychiatry, there just aren't enough geriatric psychiatrists, there aren't enough child and adolescent psychiatrists. So if you can create a way to more efficiently match up the time that that person has to devote to their professional activities, with the consumers of their of their work, then you can also begin to address access problems. So you can have a system where people are moonlighting, but instead of moonlighting in a hospital, they're doing their moonlighting by working for a uh, telehealth company where people can uh, if they have a you know have a uh, a problem and they want to talk to a doctor, they can just go online and they're connected to a doctor. They don't have to go to the urgent care clinic. They don't have to go to their primary care doctor. And it's better than a phone call in some cases, because as you know, as a clinician, pictures worth a thousand words and looking at someone, you can often get a sense of kind of how they're feeling. So I think that there will always be that opportunity um, in terms of creating a gig economy for physicians and for other, other professionals too, for the psychologists and social workers in behavioral health. Um, I also think... Um, there's another company I work with called Luna that actually does it for physical therapists. So physical therapists can actually go make house calls if they choose. And this technology allows them to do it, you know, make five or 10 visits a week on the side. And it's helpful for them. And it's great for the patients who actually have care delivered in the home instead of having to go into a clinic. I think that the um, big opportunity for technology in the future is to be more and more able to bring care to the patient instead of bringing the patient to the care. So we're not there yet in terms of, and, and I was talking with a potential client the other day, and he said, you know, this concept of touch, that telehealth is limited because some people need to be touched. You need, a, you need a throat swab. You need to lay hands on an abdomen to see if it's, you know, acute abdomen needs a surgical intervention. You need a CT scan. Some people have scanning, I guess, or imaging that will work as well in the home as CT scans do. But, but we need to figure out how we bring more care to people in their home or in their community um, so it's more accessible. And we need to do that in a way that um, minimizes the sort of challenges we currently face with equity and access to healthcare services. And so home-based services actually can overcome some of those barriers because 
everyone can access care in their home um, if you have the technologies and the people to make that happen. And so the growth of services like hospital at home is another example. Hospital at home has been practiced, you know, in the US, it's just starting here in some ways. In other countries, you guys have been doing it in the UK for decades, right? Same thing in other parts of the world. Now the technology is so much better because you can actually have the remote patient monitoring devices. We actually have better logistics so we can deliver the medications you need in real time. We have community-based paramedicines. You can have emergency medical technicians, you know, stop by and, and hang a bag of antibiotics or fluids or whatever while they're making their rounds and doing other stuff. So the better and better we get at moving staff and using technology to make them more efficient into the, into the home, I think that's where all these technologies are going to make a big difference for patients. I think one of the beautiful things that I've seen with the gig economy, um, say Uber drivers as an example, is the kind of free market being applied to drivers in a way that can actually be very beneficial to them. But then also on the customer side, you have we've all had that experience of on a Friday night trying to get an Uber somewhere, the surge comes in and your five pound trip now costs 30 pounds. And I'd be very interested in your perspective on this as someone in the US healthcare system, which is that those kind of free market hardcore free market applications seem fair enough if you're just trying to uh, get a lift to the pub or something like that. But when we're applying these kinds of things to patients, obviously some issues come up. So I, I was just curious about your thoughts around that and applications of free market economics to patients. Yeah, so we don't have the surge pricing for appendectomies, uh, at least not yet. <laughs> so uh, I'm not sure that's something I would look forward to. Although I guess if I were willing to have my appendectomy at you know, 2 a.m., I might get better price on it. Other studies that show if you did midnight surgeries, it, the results aren't as good. But uh, all cutting aside, I think that the issue is sort of how you pay for healthcare, And is it price sensitive or not? And the truth is, yeah, it's price sensitive. If you want access to care that's quicker, that's higher technology, that costs more to deliver, you're going to have to pay a premium in some cases to get that price. It's not surge pricing the way that the the uh, ride-sharing applications do it today. But there very much is a situation in the U.S., for example, where if you are a dominant health system in any particular market, you can charge higher prices to the health plan because there's simply no one else that they can buy that service from. And so we don't have necessarily surge pricing, but we definitely have market power-related pricing. And the same is true for the health plans. They can charge more um, from their potential customers, whether it's the employer group or their or their um, their uh, members, um, they can also crush, you know, drop the rates on their health plan partner and their health provider partners because they have market power. Uh, so there's definitely price sensitivity and, and lots of sort of cost shifting that goes on here in the U.S. Um, because of market power and market dominance. And the ride sharing example is just you know a more real-time example of what's actually happening in a capitalist uh, system all the time. One of the things that I find fascinating about yourself, both from your education and your CMO roles and other things, is that you seem to be someone who can go into lots of different fields and quickly become competent or great at what, whatever you do. Um, so both in your education, but also when you're a CMO of very different companies in very different areas. And the question really is that, do you have a formula or do you have certain things that you do to get up to scratch on something quickly and become very competent at it, if that makes any sense? Yeah, first of all, thank you. I'm not sure that that's the case. <laughs> I Hopefully it is. My clients, I think, would say it probably is. But I think it's really thinking about um, 
sort of where are you and what's what's your focus and what do you really want to accomplish? Um, even generalists have to focus um, from time to time to really become really, really good at the things that they're doing all the time. So um, for me, the areas that I focus on, which have to do with um, clinical product development and strategy, uh, business development strategy, thought leadership, so blogging and podcasts like this and webinars and so on, those are the things that I've done for a long time. And so even though there's variability in terms of what the specific niches or needs are a particular client, those sort of core areas of functionality are very much a part of what I do and why I'm, I don't, I don't always feel like I'm starting something totally new every time I go into a new client, although I certainly am starting a new project. I would also say that um, in clinically speaking, I used to work in a long-term care, long-term acute care facility on weekends and um, moonlighting. And I think one of the things I've learned is that um, we're not always as bound or narrowed as we need to be. And so when I was moonlighting in this facility on the weekend and the feeding tube fell out, they had a rule that you had to have radiologic proof. And so we had to send a patient to the ER to have them actually do an x-ray to see what was going on. Now, what I learned was that there actually was an x-ray machine at this facility. And so what I did instead of sending a patient to the ER, which I always think of as a, a loss as a geriatrician, I don't keep, keep patients away from the hospital unless they absolutely have to be there. And this was not an acute medical issue. It was just the feeding tube fell out. So the, um, the chief medical officer of the facility called me and told me that all I needed to do was go downstairs at an x-ray suite. They called in their, their x-ray tech, um, take a big syringe, inject air, and look at the air bubble in the stomach. You know, take a picture before injecting the air, take a picture af afterwards. And if it was big enough, then I wouldn't have to inject gastrographin, which is this contrast agent, to see what was going on. So I did that. It turned out it was seated in the right place and everything was fine. But I never imagined I would be on a Sunday afternoon injecting, you know, air into a feeding tube and taking an x-ray. We're only bound by um, our sense of what our limits are. So I'm not ready to go for cardiac surgery, of course. But could I suture? Could I do joint injections? Could I do much more than I currently do? Yes, uh, with supervision and with practice and support. Um, so recently when I started making house calls again, I actually went through training um, with one of the medical directors from the house calls company about like, if you're gonna suture someone, how do you do that? If you're gonna give IV injections, let's review that. So you still have to make sure that your skills are up to speed and uh, that you're competent and get signed off on. But we are only bound by what we really think we can do. And we often can do way more things than we actually think we, we know how to many, many things that are outside of our current comfort zone. Have there been any lessons that you've learned about leadership? And specifically, I'd be very interested in the managing and leading of people and, and quite often high flyers, I'd imagine. So I'm still learning to be a leader. I think that's the, the most important lesson is that you always have to be learning. And that's true, whether it's about leadership or uh, injecting air into someone's feeding tube or how to have a how to have a good meeting with an agenda that's effective and with where everyone's heard. And so I think that those skills are skills that you constantly have to be honing and improving and seen as a lifelong learning task. In terms of leadership, I want to talk specifically about physician leadership, because I think that's a huge challenge, at least here in the U.S., no one goes to medical school with the desire of becoming the chair of the department or the medical director or the chief medical officer, right? We go because we want to take care of patients. We want to do surgeries. Or we want to prescribe medicines. We just want to listen to them and, and help them heal. And so when someone says, oh, I want to be the 
chief medical officer, most of your colleagues are like, what? Are you selling us out? Are you betraying us? Are you, you know, and having been in many unpleasant conversations with physicians about things like contracts and payment rates and quality measures and how they need to change and electronic medical records and all of that, I totally understand why most people wouldn't want a job where you're responsible for implementing this and proving quality and all the rest of it. However, if we don't have effective physician leaders who can advocate for patients, who really put the patients first, who can really help to bring a clinical and business perspective to balancing the needs of the patients um, with whatever the organization is trying to accomplish in favor of the patients as much as possible, we're not going to be effective advocates for our patients. And already, I think we're seeing as healthcare becomes more industrialized or more scaled up, where professional managers are making a lot of decisions that impact the clinical care of those patients. And without the voice of an effective physician leader, there's always a risk that that won't be the best approach, the best balancing of limited resources with unlimited healthcare needs. Um, that's, that's always going to be the struggle. And so we need more than ever to have a fit, efficient and effective physician leaders who are not only good at engaging physicians and leading them, but working in teams and being able to um, affect, affect and influence the care by infecting and influencing the systems of care that actually provide the healthcare that people get. I think one of the things I've witnessed in my short experience of clinical practice is that quite often when leadership roles are offered to physicians, it's very much like, please carry on doing your job and here's some loads of extra stuff and responsibility that you now have to do for free. So I think there very much is a feeling that this stuff looks a bit like a poison chalice, like why, why the hell would I do this? Uh, I think you're exactly right. We used to joke that the medical directors were always the people who missed the meeting when they appointed the medical director. So when they asked for volunteers, they didn't say no. And so they got stuck with it. And uh, that wasn't always the case, obviously. But I think that that's why there's more and more people who are pursuing MBAs or who are earlier on in their career or, or JDs, um, MPHs, who are early on in their career, think realizing that they do have the opportunity to um, make a difference beyond one patient at a time. And that's, that's the real, the really amazing thing about being a physician leader in an organization is that the impact that you can have goes beyond this relatively small number of patients you can see in your clinic or your surgery and instead goes and can impact populations of patients across a whole geographic area or a service line or whatever, whatever level of organization that you're leading. And that's, that's, what made me want to become a physician leader. This idea that goes back to the advocacy of patients, making sure that they're getting the best quality, that it's at the lowest cost, that it's a good experience for them and for the clinicians who are responsible for their care, really making sure that we're doing the best we can. And we know we're not. That's the frustrating thing. We know we're not doing the best we can. We're spending huge amounts of money. We're investing massive amounts of resources and we're still struggling to provide even basic care um, for many, many kinds of illnesses, whether it's pediatric uh, diseases or vaccinations or geriatrics fall risk assessments or helping people with glasses and hearing aids who need them. We're, we're constantly faced with opportunities to improve. And to be someone who makes improvements, you have to have the skill set of leadership of your team, leadership of working with other clinicians and influencing their behavior, leadership with your business colleagues to influence them and investors even to help them understand kind of why they need to structure things a certain way to not only um, to not only really 
make the health of the patients they're trying to influence better, but also to ensure that they're getting value for the dollars that they're investing. If you could advise either your own 20-year-old self or another 20-year-old self with similar aspirations to you, uh, what would you say to them? So my son will be 20 in May. <laughs> so this is not a theoretical question. Uh, he is a sophomore in pre-med. And a lot of my physician friends are like, why would you tell your son to go into medicine? It's so difficult and it's so frustrating with the electronic medical records and documentation and all the rest of it. And all of that's true. It is a really difficult profession. It always has been because you're helping people who are often very sick and suffering. And many of them have chronic diseases you're not going to be able to cure. Um, our, our patients will die. Some of them will die after horrible amounts of suffering. Um, that's the reality of being a physician. You see people in the most triumphant after they've recovered or after they've healed. And you also see them suffering potentially when they can't recover or when they aren't able to heal. And the opportunity to have that kind of relationship where you're engaging with someone, you're really helping them to get better, or if they're dying, you're helping them to die a peaceful death without suffering. Those to me are some of the most amazing responsibilities as a human. Like you can't, it's hard for me to imagine there's a more important thing you can do with your life um, than to help people through these challenges and to be there with them through the good times and the bad times and to help them make sense of it as they're going through it. So I tell them all the time, you, know, you don't have to go to medical school. You, this is, if you decide you want to change, do something totally different, absolutely fine with that. It's up to you. But if you go into medicine, this is these are the rewards, the opportunity to be there with the patients to help them heal. Or if you're an administrative physician, like, like he sees me now, and I don't see patients very often, but we talk a lot about the things I'm working on and how we're trying to make things better for older adults or how we're trying to make it easier for people to access care or how we're trying to figure out like new models of care for, for people of whatever age that makes it easier for them to heal and to get better and to stay healthy. Um, he understands that this is such a, an important mission and an opportunity to impact people and to constantly be challenged yourself to grow and to learn and to get better. And so my advice is always that this is something, if medicine is something that you're considering as a career, whether it's as a physician or a psychologist or a nurse, listen to that. Try it out. See, see if it works for you. Um, because the reality is it's no longer a clinician-only world. If you decide that you want to stay in healthcare and don't want to see patients, you certainly can do that. Um, but it's just an amazing, amazing opportunity to influence people and be there for really important parts of their lives. And it's a privilege, I, I believe, to be a physician. So that, that's my advice. I hope you enjoyed that episode. You can find all my links by going to bigpicturemedicine.co.uk. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, then please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you.